Welcome to another episode of Eastern Current Saltwater Fishing Podcast. My name is Captain Ozzy from Market 23 Guide Service. Today I had the pleasure to sit down with Captain John Mauser of Telling Tide Guide Service. You guys have heard John's unique story on previous episodes. However, on today's show, John and I cover a few new topics, including tips for catching more fish on fly, advice for fishing the flats, striped bass, redfish, and of course, everything North Carolina fishing. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com, and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast where my guide buddies and I discuss our day-to-day fishing on the way to the boat ramp in the morning. You will also be able to find extra video content that you can't find on YouTube. If you've loved listening to the Eastern Current podcast, subscribing to our Patreon is a great way to help support the show. Well, Captain John Mauser, mustache man himself. Howdy, howdy. I got to mention the mustache. <laughs> I don't know why it's such a big deal. I think it should be a part of your logo somehow. Yep, that's it. I need to <laughs> I need to stand out somehow. I'm not a spectacular <laughs> guide. I'm not good looking. I'm not tall. So you got to remember me some way, so I just I can grow a mustache. <laughs> that's great, man. Well, I appreciate you carving out some time to sit down and chat with me. Um, had you on before fan favorite and um both sitting in Weldon, North Carolina guiding for these rock fish. Um how's your season going so far? How how's the striper going? It's going. We're we're actually what are we I'm day number three into being up here. I know you've been up here a while longer, Ozzy, but it's um it's going. We're catching fish. Um other than today the weather's been really nice. Uh water flow is pretty optimal right now. But I think it hasn't really, you know, there's some conversation about this, but I don't think it has been optimal enough for long enough to get the big push of fish up here yet. So I think the best of what's going to happen this year is yet to come in the next couple days to the next week or so. I think more and more fish are going to show up. The good news is a lot of the fish we've seen or we've caught in the last couple of days have been quality fish. Mm -hmm. So there's some 12 inches out there, but there's some, some solid fish that are, you know, in the mid-20s to over 30 inches that have been caught in the last few mm-hmm. days. Yeah, I would agree. We just haven't had that consistent window of good weather. Uh, when we say good weather, it's the weather that we need to push the fish to where we're at. Uh, right, right. And that's not been consistently the case yet. It's been it's been what we need for a couple of days, and then it's back, cold front, rain, whatever the case is, jack the river up. Yep. So. Yeah, like for people who aren't familiar with the – the Weldon, you know, Roanoke River fishery. Um, <clears throat> these these fish, a lot of these fish are coming from, like Weldon is, I want to say it's like 180 miles from Oregon Inlet. If you do the math and follow all the curves for the Roanoke, 
And some of these fish are coming from the sound, from the Albemarle Sound. Some of these fish are coming from the ocean. And they got a long journey to make. And each spring, they rely on um, just different signals of, of spring. And, and one of that's going to be water temperature. But another thing is going to be water flow to tell those fish it's time to, you know, swim 50, 100 miles upriver, upstream to spawn. And historically, um, the Roanoke River you know, wasn't dammed until I guess the 1950s. So, you know, you had your spring rains and, and there was just normal flooding that came down the river and for thousands of years signaled these fish to come up. Well, for the last 70 years, it's been dammed. So uh, depending on the amount of water that the Corps of Engineers lets out and when they start letting that out for spawning, it signals to those fish downstream to push up. And we've only, like I so said, we've had it for maybe a week now. So those fish are on their way up, but Normally they'd be here in larger numbers, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, this is the rockfish capital of the world and it can be absolutely stacked with fish when they get here because they all stack within a couple miles of each other. Um, you know, it's one of the, probably the biggest spawning area for, for striped bass on the East coast. So when they all get here, it's amazing. Yeah, I would totally agree, man. And so I'm on day eight or nine, something like that. But, uh, it has been a roller coaster, and it really feels like these fish have been moving on the winds because of the in- inconsistency. And I mean, there's there's slight consistency, but it's just enough to keep them well, keep them doing I don't know what, and keep us on our toes. So we're we're scratching it out for sure. You know, we're we're catching fish, we're putting fish over the rails, and we're having those those welding days. You know what I mean? But the quality has been great. I mean, we had a day where we put in like multiple 30 inches over and just, just, but we only caught 15 fish that day. And which is amazing <laughs> anywhere else yeah, in the world. I, guess I, was, I was about to say, Ozzy, how many times do we, do we talk about this whole, I, I, we've probably said it twice a day. Comparison is the thief of joy. We say that all the time because you know, you get an angler here and they're like, oh my gosh, I caught 15 striped bass on fly or on artificial in a half day of fishing, five, six hours of fishing. And they're stoked about it. And unfortunately, the the hard part for us as guides is we've seen the worst days of it and we've seen the best days of it. So we've actually had days where we've come pretty close to being skunked on the Roanoke River up here at Weldon. And then we've had days where we've cleared well over 100 fish in a half a day. So we're always thinking about, well, you know, oh man, we really wish we could have got closer to 50 or 100 for this guy. Mm-hmm. And he's stoked because he's never gone anywhere where he could catch 15 quality striped bass in a couple hours of fishing. So you got to put it all in perspective. So even though we're sitting here going, oh, man, it's not quite what it should be yet, it's still pretty darn good. Still pretty good. I would totally agree. And personally, if I was to be the one with the rod in my hands, you give me 15 quality fish over 116-inch fish any day. I mean, that's a given. That's yeah. a no-brainer. I don't Same even, thing with trout. Same thing with reds. I'm at the point, I've done this so long, I don't even care if I don't catch any fish anymore. I just like floating down the river or, or casting a rod. So that's probably not good for me because I have to keep in mind <laughs> that the person on the front of the boat probably wants to catch more than that. But yeah. it's, uh, the, and speaking of that, like the Roanoke River is just, it's gorgeous. Like everything's green right now. The water's flowing. You've got rapids. You've got coastal looking swampy areas. You've got big trees down in the water. You've got turtles. You got bald eagles. You got herons. You can muskrat, smell the muskrats, otters. otters, turkeys. You can smell the honeysuckle. The the warblers are flying around the river. I mean, it's it's such a gorgeous place to fish 
Um, and, and then just to add the fishing on top of it, it's, it mm-hmm. just, it's a sweet spot to be in April yeah. and May. What's your favorite part about it? Um, my favorite part of it from my point of view is that it is the polar opposite of a lot of the fishing that I do the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. I grew up in northeastern North Carolina on the Chowan River, which is basically the river that runs parallel to the Roanoke. So I grew up fishing, you know, sunfish and bass and, and stripers or rockfish, as they call them here, uh, you know, till I was probably 15, 16 years old. And then I got really heavy into saltwater. And that's most of my life revolves around pulling the flats or, you know, going out in the ocean chasing fish. So I always look forward to just going somewhere freshwater fishing, whether that's trout stream or here and on the Roanoke. Mm-hmm. I, I just love the change of scenery, the change of pace. I like the fact that I don't have to push a boat for eight hours across <laughs> a flat. Um, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a little bit, I feel like I'm cheating because I just get to hang out and, and, you know, I, I ask people to, uh, here, give me a few more knots to untangle or something. Let me, let me unwrap that line around your rod tip. So I feel like I'm doing a little bit more work. Cause it's just, it's such a, it can be such an easy, pleasurable fishery to mm-hmm. do up here. Uh, that's what I love about it. I just love being here. Um, I love striped bass, and I just, I just enjoy the whole aspect of it. And just that is so different. Yeah, I love, I love how different it is. Um, now here lately, though, at eleven thousand cfs or cubic feet per second, and all that means is how high the water is right now. Is um, I'm breaking off a ton. These fish have been in the sticks here for me have been in the stick. You're casting, skipping like a bass guy up into the bank. And that means I'm probably going to tie 50 uni to unis. You know what I mean? Like, I'm probably going to tie 50 jigs on today. So, I've been busy. <laughs> I've, I've t- tied a lot of knots, but it's not keeping your eye on a tide chart and pulling a skiff and your eyes aren't as busy as when you're looking for the next shot and uh, dissecting a flat and... You know what I mean? So it's it's polar opposite. Although I'm I'm busy tying knots and, and looking at, oh, well, is there a fish on my machine or is there not? Where are the fish moving up or down? Like you're you're working, right? You're being a guide, but it's just a totally, totally different type of work for sure. It it really is. You know, we're not we're not sight fishing busting albacore, we're not sight fishing redfish on a flat, but we are relying heavily on our on our fish finders. We're mm-hmm. moving around looking for pockets and seams where these fish might be hanging we're trying to find them below and you know we may have to pick up and you know go to the next bend and then the next bend to find fish or we may have to turn around and run you know several miles down river trying to find the next group of fish that are pushing up Mm -hmm. and then you know we may have to run up into the rocks and and try to find the fish up in the rapids so you're, you're still doing the same stuff you're doing guiding it's just it's a completely different approach to it absolutely it is i would say My favorite part about coming to Weldon, well, probably a two-part answer. There's two things that probably go neck and neck. For me, um, I love catching that many fish. Dang, we only caught 10 fish. It was slow today. Like, that's epic. I don't care where you're at. Excuse me. But another thing is the camaraderie, you know, the the dock, the hotel. You know, like, there's probably at the end of this, you know, when it peaks – There'll be 10 guides that stay in the same hotel, 10 plus, really. Um, all from different areas, do different things day to day. And then at the dock, goodness gracious, 20, 20 plus. 
guides from different areas, and we're all tying up at the same docket every morning and every evening, and it you know we take a lunch break, so see each other again, and this the whether it's giving each other a hard time and and picking on one another, or if it's just you know checking in on like how's the fishing been, you know just the whole camaraderie of this area among the guides. This is a true fishery where it's not always about what you know. Now, if you know a lot, great, but sometimes. It's about what who you know. You know what I'm saying? Um, now I'm not a phone call angler or a phone call captain. I don't I don't try to be heavy on my phone calls as far as like, hey, uh, what, what's the fish doing? But it, it sometimes there's a phone and more than once. Not just sometimes. You know, you or a good buddy or someone within your network of of guides at this dock, are like, hey, you need to push up river now. You know what I mean? And um, I love that. I don't get that back home. You know, I, I talk to maybe one or two people back home, but it's flats. You know, I'm not going to pull in on the same flat or, or, or the bank or whatever. So that's pretty cool here. I enjoy that a lot. It's um, it's very similar to kind of like when we fish false albacore, whereas, you know, everybody's on a VHF radio and you can, you know, trying to find fish there in the ocean. And there's nothing wrong with working off of each other. You you know, you do a favor to somebody today, next day somebody saves you when you can't get on the fish when they've moved. Yep. And it's the same thing here. We're all working, you know, we're all working together to put our anglers on as many fish as possible. And and this is one of those situations, just like Albie fishing in the ocean, where it's okay if there's four or five boats That's drifting right. the same school of fish. It doesn't stop any, it doesn't lessen anybody's chances of catching mm-hmm. fish you just respectful about it, and and so it's great to work together and 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 give a phone call or get a phone call. Um, I agree. I, I do think that's that's a big deal. Yeah. While you were talking, I did think of my other favorite thing about uh, guiding up here in Weldon. That is that for two whole weeks, I don't have to wash my trailer afterwards. <laughs> Love that. Oh man, that's great. Drop it in fresh water is amazing. You don't flush your motor out and. You don't wash your trailer. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah, I forgot about that one. I, I, I mean, tell it on myself. I really don't even wash my boat. I got a little brush, and I'll hit it. You know, just get like the, the grass off or the the blood from the yesterday off. But hopefully, there's not much blood because we're catching release. But um, nonetheless, it's, the maintenance goes way down. Not dropping in the salt. Yeah, there's there's actually some of the. The, the the guys have been doing it here for a long time. If they catch you at the dock using a, a brush, cleaning your boat off, because it's all red clay here. So, you you know, you walk on the boat and you got red clay footprints on it. And if they see you scrubbing it off, like they'll rib you a little bit, like asking you, you know, what are you doing? Like it's just going to get muddy again as soon as somebody steps on your boat. And they're right. So uh, all our boats get a probably a big spa treatment once this, this season's over. Well, it's just it's hard to keep it really, really like spotless clean, you know, like bleach white. It's it just gets trashed. You know, you're here for fourteen, fifteen days, however long you decide to stay, and 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 we. I was just on another podcast talking about the similar thing here, but as much fun as it is, it, there's a little bit of grind aspect to it, right? So we're waking up real early and we're fishing until. The sun goes. We basically, I drop my boat at dark and I trailer at dark. Love it. There's no other way I would like to spend my my career, my job. But I'm really not going to put a ton of time into washing the boat. There's grass. There's blood. There's you know, mud. There's whatever. I'm going to do. I'm going to get the big stuff out and then I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. So at the end of 14 days, 
I look at my boat, I'm like, holy crap, you know, I'm gonna go, like you said, it's gonna get spa day. I just gotta get detailed when I get back. But I think everybody understands that too. You know what I mean? Like, it's the, it's, it's hard to explain, but I've also explained it like the same way people explain having kids, right? They're like, oh, it's hard. Don't, you know, it's financially a burden. I don't sleep anymore. It's the best thing I've ever done. I'm like, wait a minute. Now I'm confused, yeah. right? Like, wh- what do you mean? Um, you just said a bunch of negative things and said it's the best thing you'd ever done and you'll never do it. You would never see your life without it. That's that's the welding. Or, or any, really, any quote-unquote grind, um, bull drum, albacore, all of that stuff when you're just you're running sun up to sundown every single day, twice a day, whatever. You're like, golly, am I tired? But that was a blast. Oh yeah, we're just we're just struggling to try to find somewhere that we can get a bite to eat for dinner at nine thirty at night. That's right. still open here. Mm-hmm. And I think in the scheme of things, when when you're fishing fiberglass skiffs around boulders and moving current, a little bit of mud on your deck or or some extra braid line wadded up in the bottom of your <laughs> cockpit of your yeah. boats, that's the least yeah. of your concern. Mm-hmm. There's bigger fish to fry at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> pun intended. Um. But nonetheless, migrating a little bit, migrating just like striper. There you go. Migrating a little bit from from striper because we've we've only got a little bit of time left. If anybody's interested in the striper trips, please reach out. We've we've got a few more days available for that. But moving into to our our more daily thing, um, which would be fly fishing for reds. I would say both of us take the majority of our time are spent chasing reds on the flats with a fly rod. Um, you being a fly fishing guru that you are, <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a few rapid fire fly questions. Okay. So buckle up. I'm I'm ready to lie. Okay. Um, so first of all, tell me about your rod building business before we jump into that actually. Sure. So, um, uh, in 20, early 2017, uh, so six years ago, we launched a USA made fly rod company. Um, it's kind of small batch, so it's, you know, we're not, we're not producing the same level of number of rods each year obviously is is a bigger brand that you know that's been around for a while we've got as you know there's a half a dozen companies in the united states that are uh, making high-end usa rods and they've been around for a while so we're basically trying to produce those that same quality of rod um, maybe a little bit lower price point uh, for anglers and we're just you know we're taking the long road on that and trying to build that company the right way Um, but basically i was just trying to continue my love for the the whole sport of fishing and fly fishing and find a way to do it um, beyond just being a fishing guide and just thinking long term you know where did I want to be I hate to use the word entrepreneur is it but as a business person you know 10 20 years from now so um, that's that's what we've been doing we've got a handful of different um, models of rods or families of rods anywhere ranging from you know three weight to 12 weight I think a lot of people think of um, it's Mauser Fly Fishing um, is the name of the company. So they think of our company as a saltwater company just because we're right here based on the coast and, it, and we're, you know, you see us fishing these rods a lot in saltwater, but we make trout rods. We've got three weights and four weights and five weights. And then we've got them all the way up to, you know, we've got people fishing the 12 weights for, for tarpon and arapaima and, and all kinds of cool stuff. So it's it's been a heck of a journey. It's um It's probably the hardest thing I've ever uh undertook as far as 
actually building a real business. Um, there's just like with guiding, there's so many aspects that go beyond what people realize when it, when it comes to building a company. So, um, it's, it's kept me on my toes for the last six years, but I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, and I love probably more than anything out of that company. I love seeing the pictures and hearing the stories from people who bought rods from us. You know, we may be made right here in North Carolina, but we've had rods that have caught, you know, tuna species I'd never seen of out of Taiwan and, and cool fish out of, you know, peacocks and uh, paku and all kinds of stuff out of the Amazon and, and trout I'd never seen before in Europe. And so all that's, that's really rewarding for me to get that feedback that, you know, Hey, we, we love the rod. We want to order one in this weight and this weight because we took it on this trip and we, mm-hmm. we you know, we caught a nine pound bonefish in the Bahamas on it. Like that's awesome. Like I want to go catch that nine pound bonefish in the Bahamas. I can't. I'm here in North Carolina right now. But building rods. It's awesome. Yeah, but it's <laughs> awesome to think that something that, you know, I laid hands on or we laid hands on here in Swansboro went out to somewhere and did something cool that that's I may awesome. may or may not ever get to do, but I kind of get to live vicariously through those people. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a grind and it's, it's a long-term project, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and I, I wouldn't change it for a thing. Yeah, it's pretty sick. Um, so jumping into the rapid fire a little bit, what is your, you had to fish North Carolina with one fly rod. What do you got oh, as man. far as weight class? Don't stuff. do that. Um, <clears throat> if I had to, my God, like everything that I enjoy fishing sure. in North yeah, Carolina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Um, from albacore to redfish to rainbows brown everything. Like, I I what are you, what are you going probably with? a seven weight seven. I probably a seven weight, and I would you know you're over, yeah. I'd I'd still go throw streamers at brown trout and rainbows, and I'd go throw poppers at bass and speckled trout and rain, redfish and stuff. It'd be fine, and you'd um you know you could go if you knew how to fight them right. You could handle an albacore on a seven weight, and you'd catch stripers on a sinking line on a seven weight, and um. You know, okay, probably wouldn't go catch an amberjack or a cobia on it, but that probably would. If I had to pick one rod to fish the rest of my life, and that was it, probably a seven weight. Um, if I could pick two, it would be a f- mm, a four and a nine. So I was going five nine. That's five, five nine four nine, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'd probably skip over the eight. Yeah, I, I would too. But eight does the best for. Certain things. Yes, if you have one rod for salt water, you know everybody goes, "Oh, just get an eight weight." And then if the the five weights, the answer for fresh water, they're absolutely right. Those that's the best all arounder. You mm. can do the most with it. But I think you know I have that tendency to like to every once in a while go chase larger bruiser fish. So I probably would do a nine weight because I'd feel pretty comfortable chasing most things with a nine. Yeah, I would. I'd be the same way. Now, if you were to marry that seven, this is where I was going with that. If you were to marry that seven, would you carry a six-weight spool of line, a seven-weight spool of line, and an eight-weight spool of line? Like, do you buy into you can go up and down one class of weight on the line and be fine? Or where, where's your head at with that? Gosh, it goes all over the place. So rapid <laughs> fire. I'm, bad question for rapid fire. Yeah, no doubt. No, so, not a very fast so, rapid. So so as quick as I can on that um, – I rarely ever for in North Carolina find myself needing to underline on on underweight or underline a line on a, on a rod on for floating lines. Generally, depending on what you're doing, anywhere from a standard, you know, on a seven weight, a standard seven weight line, or one line weight heavier on a floating line is usually the best. Um, there's nothing wrong with overlining your rods. It does not mean you have the wrong rod for you, or it does not mean you can't cast. Generally, overlining your rod is going to 
allow you to load your rod quicker for shorter casts and dealing with wind. So when you deal with fish like redfish or an albacore that pops up quick and you've got two false casts and you maybe only have 10 or 15 foot of line out the tip of your rod, overlining it is going to help you a lot. And that's really, I think, the biggest reason that you see like a redfish line from SA or Rio or wherever it's if it says seven weight, it's really a seven and a half or seven and three quarter. They know those fish pop up quick and you don't have much time to get enough line out your rod tip to make a long cast of them. So, you know, that's engineered that way. So I would say uh, I would probably go half weight heavy on floating lines. I would also have in probably on a seven weight, a mm, 300 grain intermediate line. And I would have a 300 grain full sinking line. And that would be what I would do because in North Carolina, Really, I use floating lines half the time, and I rely a lot on intermediate and sinking lines for the different species here. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good answer. I think I'm, I'm probably laying right there with you on on, on as far as overlining and stuff. Um, but that can be confusing as a new new fly angler, you know what I mean? Like when to overline, when to, when to not, and that's a great explanation as far as quick shots and stuff. And, and unfortunately, everybody has an opinion and you go on the internet and everybody puts their opinion and, and they're all conflicting. So it gets really confusing. Um, you know, unfortunately, everybody casts different. And the best answer is just whatever's best for you and your situation. Because, you know, the guy who fishes bonefish in the Bahamas who says, well, on that rod, you need an exact weight or you need to underline it at a half weight. He's throwing little tiny flies and he's throwing them 80 feet. That mm-hmm. doesn't work for someone in North Carolina who's throwing. 25 feet to a redfish that popped up that's giving you three seconds before he's gone and you're throwing a big heavy bushy wind resistant fly you need a different line for that so um, i would say honestly if you were new at it i would reach out to people who actually fish the type of fishing you want to do in that general area and ask them what works best for them or you could reach out to a local fly shop in that area that's where i was going yeah those guys are going to be probably your best bet to just steer you in the right direction because like anybody else in fly fishing it's a it's all family here it's we want everybody to be successful so most people are going to probably give you the you know their their best their best thoughts on that and i think fly shop would be a great place to speak to yeah shameless plug in the middle of our rapid fire um we have a great buddy of ours uh captain perry who just opened up uh soundside outfitters in swansboro north carolina and pretty epic fly shop I know both of us have been into a mini a fly shop throughout our career. It's a good one. This is one of the one of the better ones I've been into. But the nice thing about that is it's um pretty pretty heavy with guides. You know, every time I've been in there, guides have been in and out. Whether it be me, you, Cameron, Judd, Perry, whoever, and and more than willing to be like this is you know point you in the right direction. And and um I know Perry will take you out in the backyard and and. Here, cast this, cast that. You know, try this. You know, how do you cast? Because it is about how you cast and, and how you fish, and you know what I mean. So he's willing to have that conversation and break it down like a good, good. That's a good fly shop, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, shameless plug there. So. Yeah, and I'm I'm so so happy for Perry, and I'm I'm super proud of him and the way that he approached putting that fly shop together. And uh, yeah, it's I mean he's he's a fly fishing guide. Like he knows what works for him. But not only that, like. I know when he started ordering, you know, he's got a wall full of fly lines. Like he wanted to put the fly lines that people are actually going to need in this area. And I know he sat down with the catalog and he sat down with some of the local guides and said, what fly lines would you do if you were going to 
pick all the stuff that you would fish through the seasons. And then what would you do? And he made sure he had those in stock. You, you go look at his, his fly tying material. It's actually the material that's used for the types of flies tied in North Carolina, whether that's, you know, fall albacore or winter speckled trout or tailing redfish in the summer. Um, if you go look in his fly bin, he's actually got flies. He's got his, you know, the, the, the normal flies, you'll find the clousers and the deceivers and things like that. But he's got a whole section of locally tied guide flies that fly fishing guides actually keep in their box that works best for them. And he's, he's got them, you know, he's ordering those from them. And so you can actually get stuff that's working seasonally. And mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, you, 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 I know, I think he knows that you build a customer base by treating people right and, and, and making sure that when they go out there, they're as successful as possible. And he does a great job of that. So um, just props to him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, big time. Big time. I hope he listens to this and we'll get some brownie points and a discount or something. <laughs> I, uh, I doubt I'll get a discount. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you touched on a few things that I was going to touch on uh, right here is fly line. You're you're rigging your boat out to go fishing, fly fishing on eastern North Carolina. They say redfish. I guess we'll just keep it inshore because that can be a very big question otherwise. Um, what fly line are you what, what What's your go-to fly line? Inshore for me, um, which basically, inshore for me, is just is ninety nine percent redfish because when we start start talking about speckled trout, that's gonna change up that line a little bit. So let's talk about a redfish fly line because that's what everybody wants to target, and it's what's here twelve months of the year. I have gone through a lot of different fly lines over the years, and most any of your kind of mid to higher end saltwater fly lines are going to be fine. Um, currently, what I'm using is I use. Uh, scientific anglers redfish taper fly lines um, I've tried you know they're all their different flats lines and they are all great but those redfish lines really are made for those short quick casts with heavy flies into the wind when those fish pop up and every second counts and they make that in a warm water in a cold water version that's amazing and yeah and I, I went for years trying to be a cheap bum and try to use the warm water when 12 months a year and basically what happens is that warm line in the wintertime, it just coils up and keeps lots of memory. So you end up fighting it for two or three months in the dead of winter. So now I do invest in a handful of the cold water lines, which makes life easier for me and for my anglers. Um, but I like those. They're, I think they're half or three-quarter weight overweight. The It's a very short, um, aggressive taper, and it really lays those flies out to those fish quickly. Um so that that's what I use. I mean, that Rio makes something great. Airflow makes a great version of it. All those fly line companies make a great version of it. Um, so that is what I use, um, except for if I'm fishing speckled trout in the fall and I do fish sinking lines. Then yeah, same. So same here. I do a um, an intermediate sinking for trout, but for the redfish, I'm rocking the absolute same like identical line. I just rock Rio. So I rock Rio outbound uh, short short shot. Outbound short shot, I think yep. that's what they call it. Um, it's whatever that, that green line right behind my head is. And um, to to summarize or conclude that would be short, quick. That's what we're looking for. Aggressive tapers, short, quick shot. Mm-hmm. That's that's, that's what we do on a day-to-day. You you might only need 30 feet. Yep. Sometimes less. You know, summertime we can get even shorter. But um, it, it's, I need you to put 30 feet out within, like, 
too yeah. too false gas, and then be where you need to be. And it's it's the thing about that aggressive taper too is it's an accurate shot. I mean, you can sure. be more so than the say the bonefish lines or the tarpon lines or whatever. It might be just how I cast, but I find myself far more. You have more control. More control. And a good part of that is, too, that we're within 50 feet. Yeah. Real quick, for if you are not a fly angler and you're like, what are these guys talking about? Basically, you know, fly line, fly rods, when you talk about the weights of them, a five weight, a six weight, a seven weight, eight weight, you know, they're kind of comparable to a light, a medium light, a medium heavy action spinning rod. But what, what they're based on when we say seven weight or eight weight, it means that it throws a seven weight rod, throws a seven weight line well. And, and really, the determining thing is you determine first when a manufacturer makes a seven-weight line, that is based off of how much that line weighs. And then you, if a rod casts that seven-weight line well, then that becomes a seven-weight rod, and that's how they market and sell it. They think it handles that line best. And the way you determine a six, a seven, an eight-weight line is they measure the first 30 foot of the head of the line. So that, you know your line can be 100 foot long. The head of the line can be 25 or it could be 40 foot long. But what matters is the first 30 foot of that line has an actual weight in grains and they weigh it. And that there's a designation for each weight and that makes it a six, a seven, an eight weight. So for a seven weight rod, for example, to throw a seven weight line the best, you need to have 30 foot of that line out the rod tip because that's when your rod's going to perform best and you're, you're flexing and bending and loading that rod. What we have a lot in redfish is that we may only have 10, 15, 20 feet of that fly line out the rod tip because we have such short, quick casts of that fish that just popped up and tailed in front of you. So because we don't have enough line out when we make that cast, we need a more aggressive, faster, overweighted head to get that rod flexing and get the energy to be able to roll that line out. And that's the whole thing. We're, we're those, those heavier, more aggressive lines are making up for the fact that we're not carrying as much line as they standardize back in the day when they set those standards for those lines right yeah that's a great explanation that's probably the most simplified way i've i've heard it explained um i don't know that i could have have dictated that as well as you just did none of us <laughs> true i just made it up <laughs> it was just off the dome right there just kidding freestyled it um no that's that's pretty good and that's pretty good coverage as far as like setup like how to get started how to you know the thing about fly fishing is, is you can you can listen to your buddy, right, and go get the eight weight or whatever, and just start casting. But for for me and how I work and how I operate, and the way my brain's wired, I guess I need to know. You know, what I, mean? I need to have a full grasp. And I think that's a good explanation with those not so rapid fire questions, um, as far as like this is how it works, this is how it goes. Um, so getting into to the flies a little bit, to obviously pick out a species. Figure out what they eat, tie fly that looks like it. But if you had to have, say, and I've asked you this before, you say clouser, as far as like one fly, fish, the rest of your yeah. life. But you, you, you were about to make a box of, say, five flies for eastern North Carolina. Uh, what, what are you going for? Well, if, when you sit down at the vice, what are you, what are you looking to tie? So, um, if we, are, we talking, is, are we talking just redfish or are we talking everything? I would say if you get five flies, you get to do the whole state. Okay, cool. <clears throat> All right. So we are going to put a 
chartreuse and white clouser because that is the most popular saltwater fly uh, that's ever been made. Um, I guarantee if you open me or Ozzy's uh, striped bass fly box right now, it's probably 95% chartreuse and white clousers. And so that's a great all-around fly that can cover everything from uh, redfish in the surf will eat it, uh, speckled trout will eat it in the fall, albacore will eat it, bonito will eat it, Spanish mackerel, bluefish, everything will eat it. So we'll just, and stripers and everything in the river. So we'll go chartreuse and white clouser for one. Now, uh, I'm going to jump out into the ocean and then we'll jump back into redfish. So for the ocean, uh, besides clousers for your toothy fish, like your bonito, your mackerel, your albacore, um, I would do some type of epoxy fly. So something that imitates an anchovy or a silver side. So either a tan and white or olive over white epoxy fly. So these little, I don't know, two and a half, two and three quarter inch, uh, real thin uh, bait fish flies. Um, they work really well on any of these uh, pelagic fish that are eating anchovies and uh, silver sides and that type of stuff when they're too picky to eat a clouser. And they last a little bit longer with those toothy fish. So that's two of them. Um, jumping in shore, we'll put the other three for, for redfish. So, um, I would do some type of, you know, not a crab or not a shrimp, but just some type of buggy pattern, you know? And so, um, <clears throat> trying to think like, like your quan type. So basically something that sits in a little kind of shrimp or crab position with weight towards the eye of the hook, um, legs, eye stalks, that type of stuff. And those things can be fished. You know, whether you're fishing them in the wintertime or you're fishing them for summertime tailors or low tide fish. So some type of shrimp pattern that could also uh, pass for a crab. I would also do a smaller bait fish profile for inshore. So something, you know, a little two inch, um, like a Puglisi fly, something like that. And then for the last one, I would go really light. I would probably do like a seducer um, because a lot of times in the wintertime when we're throwing in these redfish and six, eight inches of water, 10 inches of water, they're extremely spooky and they're aware. And Or in summertime when you've got fish crawling with their backs out, a lot of times something with a splash might flip them out. So uh, something weightless. So I, I really like seducer flies. So, and they, those kind of can pass for a shrimp or, or a bait fish. So so that would be it. My clouser, my um, surf candy, uh, some type of shrimp, like a quan style pattern with eyes and legs on it, a seducer and some type of small inshore, like two or three inch uh, Puglisi style bait fish fly. That would be it. The main thing for me, though, is I have these flies in different weights mm. uh, because sink rate is important. There's right. some fish you can't throw a heavy weighted fly in front of a shallow fish, and you can't get a very lightly or unweighted fly down to a deep fish. And then if I had to divide it in two colors, I would stick dark on half my flies, blacks and purples and, and root beers and stuff like that. And then on and that would be for your, you know, your cloudy water, your overcast days, that darker water. And then I would tie everything else either like a light tan or a white uh, for clear water when those fish can see better and inspect it. Mm -hmm. um, so color that two-tone color variation from lighter stuff and darker stuff and then varying that weight. Yeah. I like that. I don't at first when you said getting into redfish, I don't think it would be a, a shrimp or, or a crab. I was like shocked. I was like, what? Because um, my go-to, now I agree with everything you said, and I've caught, you know, fish on and everything you said, but my go-to for the enjoyment of you know, me and my anglers is a, is a gurgler that looks like a shrimp. 
because the eat is so fun. Oh, yeah, I forgot gurglers. Granted, I would catch a lot less fish in my box than you because they don't eat gurglers every day. But the eats wake, you know what I mean? No, dude, that, that it's was, not like a topwater eat. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not like a, a uh, topwater plug. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different eat. And uh, it's like it's like a, a trout rise follow slurp. Yeah. It's not like a bam, cinder block in the water. Yeah, there's one um, that we fish called a disco shrimp, and mm-hmm. it's a, a, I think it's a Drusha cone fly, but it's a, it is a gurgler that they put a little um, sequin bead in between the foam and the eye of the hook to force the the tail of that shrimp to kick up and, and gurgle even more. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a great one too. I, you know, when I said not crab or not shrimp, what I meant was that very few of my flies in my redfish box are distinctly trying to be a crab or a shrimp. They're just something that can mimic, <clears throat> mimic both of them at the same time gotcha. right. because fish are so opportunistic. So, you know, if you have something that has eyes and legs and sits in a fighting position but looks somewhere in between the two of them, you can kind of hop back and forth in whichever one they prefer. Hopefully they'll eat. But, yeah, absolutely. I, I love gurglish too. I don't I don't fish them as much as, as I probably would like to um, just because as a guide I'm more focused on what will probably produce the best for those productivity but personally if it was just me going out there and not worried as much about numbers and i love a gurgler me too yeah i'm the same way if i think that redfish seem snappy the first thing we're doing is pulling off of them getting away tying a gurgler on because i it's just me and and that's a conversation i have with everybody on the bow like hey what do you feel about this or whatever but um yeah give me three on on or give me one on a gurgler over three on anything under the water. But there's nothing worse, too, than when you touch on the light fly, heavy fly thing, is his having a light fly that floats, say it's rabbit fur or that dragon tail type fly, um, that you make the cast that needs to be, you know what I mean? And then the redfish, redfish swims under it, and they just never saw it. That just and they're rooting through the mud, and they're hunting. Happy fish, waited to eat, and the fly just didn't get down to it. That's just... Hurts, you know, it hurts my feelings a little bit. It's, um, you know, I don't know everything, you know, and I'm not claiming to be right on anything, but I I often see, and I tell the people in the front of my boat that, you know, make sure that, make sure that you're not just crossing that fish's path, that red fish's path with a fly, but you're cognizant of where that fly is in the water column in relation to that fish. And if you cross his path right and it is, in line with, say, his mouth or his eyes, or even a little bit below it, often they will grab it. But it's rare. This is this is apart from, like, topwater flies that make a sound. It is rare to pull a subsurface fly, I find, a couple inches over the head of that fish and have him come up and grab it. He usually is so opportunistic, and he just waits until something's right in front of him. So I always tell people, like, you know, lead him enough that you can watch, and if you need to stop for two seconds and let that fly fall, let it make sure it's in front of his face because it's really going to increase. It it really you're right. It really hurts to watch that fly come over that fish's back as he swims right underneath of it mm-hmm. and ignores it. But it yeah. happens. It definitely does. It does happen. And um, another thing too, you know, like considering the angler here, because we've both spent a fair amount of time on the bow, just as much as we have on the platform. That's a hard thing to do. You know, you're in the shot. And I don't care what fish it is. I don't care if it's a permit a bonefish, a, a tarpon, or a redfish. It's hard in that moment when you you feel like you need to get, you know, strip, strip, strip. To, but the guy on the platform like, wait. Especially if he can see it and you can't. Golly, is that the hardest thing ever. 
to, to trust the guy on the platform and stop. Stop moving your rod tip. Stop moving your left tip or, or whatever your stripping hand is. That can be difficult. That can be really hard. And and that's why when I'm on the platform, I I um overemphasize the weight. Like yeah, I, I and I'm not a yeller or anything like that. But I will get intense on that one because I know how hard it is for you to wait. Um, I've told the story a thousand times, but the it's the only real comparison that I have. But first tarpon that I ever had swim up to me, I, I lost my cool. You know what I mean? And all these little tips that we're talking about, I didn't do any of them. I just I, I acted like I'd never held a fly ride before. And once I started getting my wits about me, I found it harder and harder to listen to the guy on the platform say, wait, you know what I mean? Um, so with that being said, I have sympathy. And when, with that knowledge of, of knowing how hard it is, I'm like going to, I'm going to be a little dramatic. I'm going to overemphasize that. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Even though he stopped what he started waiting a minute ago, I'm going to keep saying it because as soon as I don't say it, you know, it's a moment, it's a five second window. So just, that's a lot of talking about the waiting, but it, it's a hard thing to do. It really it, is. It is very hard. Um, I can tell you there's probably, for me as a guide, there's probably nothing more rewarding, though, when that communication does happen and they do wait and then tick, tick, tick. All right, stop. All right, speed it up. Tick, tick, tick. Like, Hold on, he's coming. Tick, tick, tick. And then that fish, redfish actually eats it and the guy's successful and he's done got his first redfish on fly. And that, you know, you were just putting out what you would have been doing if you were on the front of the boat. You're you're verbalizing it and the guy followed it and it happened and he may not have even seen it until the fish finally swiped it but I, that's there's no greater feeling than to 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 do that but back on what you were saying like you're talking about uh how it's you know we're used to that type of stuff and 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 we don't we have to kind of stop and remind ourselves how much different it is for that person who's on the bow who hasn't seen you know thousands of these fish to to wait and stop and and not cast yet or or whatever and you're talking about your tarpon it's the same way like do you want to guess the the only time I've trout set a fish in the last ten years? It was <laughs> it was it, it was a tarpon that you know <laughs> rolled up right in front of the boat, and I was watching him, and he ate it. And as soon as I saw the inside of his mouth, I just like a fairy wand. I just took that rod and just whoop, lifted it up and just gently pulled the fly right out of his mouth. And I was like, "You are so dumb." You tell people for. Every single trip, don't do that. Oh, yeah. And then I just like, my heart just like, I think was in my throat. And, but yeah, like that'll, that'll help you as a guide really quickly realize what the, and, and, and understand and respect what the person on the front of the boat is, is going through. I think it's really healthy as far as your, your career and your business as a guide to go do something new, you know, go, go put yourself in a, in a circumstance that, that the, however many people are on your bow a year are in. Go fail at something. Go fail at something. Um, I think it. I think it's really healthy to go do that. Um, and it makes you a better guy overall. Yeah. I'll, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I fail every single trip at least half a dozen times. It's something I've done. I, I'm. I have no problem admitting that I'm. You know, I'm. I'm still learning every single trip. I so. eat it too. I and then like I'll probably say it when I shouldn't say it. Honestly, I'm like, hey guys, that was on me. All the, all the time, absolutely. I tried to back the boat up when that fish was too close. Whatever, you know what I mean? I could probably think of a thousand scenarios where I'm like, but I I, I, I think it's good, too, to let them know, like, hey, man, that was on me. That absolutely. fish that just spooked, or you, the reason you didn't catch that fish was my fault. I apologize. 
you know, I always say this this term, it's, it's Fido. You know what I mean? When I explain that to them, I had a football coach in middle school who, when we had a bad play, he'd bring us back to the huddle, he would say Fido, and he later explained what that meant is he was a, he's a former military and whatnot. And he, he mean, what he said was just because you had a bad whatever shot played round, just day to dump it. Forget about it. Act like it never happened and you're back fresh. You know what I mean? And then my, my analogy for this is Russell Wilson in the last Super Bowl. I don't know if you're a sports fan or not or if we have any sports fans that listen. I have no time. Not Russell Wilson. Um, Patrick Mahomes. But um, So he's the quarterback of the team that won the Super Bowl, and he had a terrible first – not terrible, but pretty not good first half. And they were down. He went into the locker room at halftime, and it really speaks to the coaching. But um, nonetheless – he come out a different quarterback, and they dominated. I mean, the whole team dominated. They data dumped the first half of the, the game. They were down, and they come back and, and won a Super Bowl. And that's what it takes. And I, I, I have told this story a thousand times on the bow. We'll blow two, three shots. I can see that the angler on the bow is, is starting to be a little hard on himself and like, I can't believe I missed that fish. I'm like, hey, man, Fido. And I tell him the Patrick Mahomes story of last year's Super Bowl. And I'm talking about just this year of, of how many times I've had to, you know, not that I do it a crazy amount of trips or anything. It's just we blow shots. I guarantee if you and I go fishing tomorrow, one of us is going to blow a handful of shots. It'd probably be me, but no. it'll be, it'll be. nonetheless, dude, you it, fly fishing in most sports, I would argue it's 80% mental. Oh, yeah, sure. 80%. If you can just data dump that missed shot and keep going, Fido, keep, keep moving forward, I don't understand that I'd – should have asked him in seventh grade, what, why Fido? Like, was that an acronym or what? I don't know, but I just, it stuck with me. And, um, but if you can grasp that concept of just like, I ain't thinking about that anymore and just keep moving forward, you'll be a far better angler. Yeah. The, you'll be a far better golfer, angler, athlete, whatever. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Just, like, I mean, don't, don't beat yourself up with it and, and let that affect your next cat you know, your next opportunity, but at the same time, you know, analyze what you did wrong and then just figure out how you're going to change your next one. Cause we, you know, we don't dwell on things, but if I have an angler that, that angler that misses a shot and it's something obvious, we'll stop right there and we'll say, okay, I'm not going to pull to the next, you know, we're not going to look for the next fish. Let's talk real quick. What do you think that was? And, well, I think it was, you know, I, I let him too much and I, I crossed his path too soon or I, you know, I didn't let, like okay, I th- I think you're right. Let's next one game plan is the next one. Just give it a second and let them catch up to it or, or or whatever it is, and then you know, and then we just approach that next one. I think the f- people who start kind of new into fly fishing, saltwater fish, whether that is a redfish or an albacore or anything, the guys who have the most success by the end of the day are the ones who just you know they take it as an educational process and every opportunity they learn a little bit more. And they go, okay, well, that didn't work. I'm going to try this. Or right. that didn't work. I'm going to adjust this way. Hey, that did work. I'm going to do that again. You know, so, and by the end of the day, if, if those people are, are willing to just take a little little bit of learning from each single opportunity, they're, they've learned a lot and yep. really up their odds by the end of that trip. Oh, 100%. I would, I would say that that mindset works on a large scale, too. That's what we do daily. Like, oh, well, take striped bass, for instance. I caught three, ba- uh, three striper in the sticks, on the bank. I'm going to go recreate this. You know what I mean? 
I'm going to keep going downriver or, or whatever. You know what I mean? I made a drift and I don't call them on this section. I'm going to I'm gonna drift a little shorter this time. You know, recreate pattern. Don't think about what didn't work. Think about what did work and, and keep repeating it. It's just, it, that's how you pattern fish. That's how you catch fish on a, on a micro scale. That's how you catch them. I, I jigged a little more aggressively on this. You know, whatever the case is, fly fishing, bass, large mouth, small mouth, like that, that's the ticket. That is angling to a T. Yeah, and always be learning because the next day, some of that stuff's going to be useful and carry over, but the, maybe the fish are feeling a little bit different or, the, or the, the currents. So then, you know, you're taking that the next day, and mm-hmm. then you're going, mm, well, I need to make this adjustment today. And, you you know, you just you know, keep working at it until you, you figure mm-hmm. out what's working that day. Yep, oh, 100%. I would say that's that's the case. Um, but moving away from flies and, and, and really presenting that fly, um, talk talk me through just a little bit of um, I was brain farted. I had a really good question for you. Talk me through just a little bit, and I was going to ask you a really banger question. Um, oh, ready for my banger question? Now, now that I've hyped it up, I'm I'm ready. I really feel like there was one of those buttons I should have pushed. Yeah, you now. should. The want 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 or something. <laughs> I think it's this one. Oh, no. That's bad. Hold on. Yeah, that's what just happened in my brain. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no. All right. Walk me through a couple steps or a couple um, pieces of advice that you would give an angler about a step foot on your boat that would make him more successful. So he's he's booked a trip with you. He's a month out. What would you talk him through that would set him up for success, whether it be, you know, five points or expectations or whatever, what would you tell him or have him do leading up to getting on your bow that would make him have a better day overall? Cool. I could answer this way better if I was prepped for it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wing it and see. see. Okay. Um, so first thing, um, when, when I talk to an angler and, and tell them, you know, what they need to do to, to prep for it, uh, first off, I just make sure that their expectations are realistic because – what we do is challenging. It's not, you know, it's not fishing for stalker rainbow trout. It's, you know, it's, there's all kinds of stuff we have to deal with, with conditions and, and picky fish and fish on the move and stuff. But I would tell them, um, one, one of the th- or three things I tell them to kind of focus on as they're practicing and prepping for it is, um, accuracy on their casting distance on their casting. And I'll explain this in a minute. And then, um, speed, of execution so speed of their casting not how fast they're casting but how quick they can execute so what i tell them is of those three things um the least important in general if you come fish inshore with a fly rod um, is your distance everybody thinks that oh you got to make this you know 90 foot 100 foot hero shot and throw the whole fly line uh rarely ever i bet you you know 80 percent of our fish are caught between 20 and 40 feet of the boat and 10% are caught, you know, beyond 40, 50 feet. And that's usually just a lucky blind cast and 10% are caught right there at your feet, you know, 10 feet off the boat. Um, so, you know, practice in that, that range where we're going to be fishing. Um, so, you know, really practice your, your 20, 30, 40 foot shots. Um, but also be able to cast, um, 60, 70 feet because a 70 foot cast you can do in your backyard becomes a 50 foot cast once you deal with weather conditions on the boat. Um, so have that ability, um, but also be able to practice those really short casts, figure out what are you going to do if a fish shows up three feet off your rod tip? Not going to be a normal cast. You're going to, 
it doesn't have to look pretty. We're not taking pictures of your cast. How can you very quickly get that fly out of that fish? So we talk about distance and how to how to cast for distance. Accuracy is kind of the middle important thing. So everybody goes out and they cast a hula hoops and pie plates and stuff. It's good to have that that ability to be accurate in that 20, 30, 40, 50 foot range. Um, but also take into consideration that, you know, don't get in the mindset that you have to hit your target like when you're practicing in the yard because when you go out in the water, the goal is not to hit the fish and smack the fish. The goal is your accuracy is putting that fly where it needs to be so that by the time you get your fly line out, you start stripping it, the, f- the fish is moving, it intersects that fish where it needs to be. So your accuracy much more is about being able to lead that fish and then get your accuracy in your stripping and, and your your weight, like we said, and your tick, 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 all right, stop, wait, 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 you know, for five seconds. And so getting that mindset that although you're good at your accuracy, really your accuracy is going to come in picking, hey, I'm going to cast 5, 10, 20 feet in front of this fish and I'm going to time it right to show it to that fish without spooking them. The most important of those three that I tell them to practice is your speed of execution. And so every single redfish, and I may have said this on here before, has a little clock over his head that's ticking down. And some redfish have, some redfish you can sit and hide behind, you know, an an oyster bar and you can fish them for all day long. Mm -hmm. You know, when they come and they come close enough and you get a shot at them, Often, though, when we're stalking fish and we're pushing across the flats and the water's not crystal clear, those fish surprise you. And they may give you one, two, three, four, five, six seconds. You know, a lot of these fish, they either spook or they're aware of you and they get lockjaw or they just turn an angle or they slide behind the grass and you don't get your shot. So I tell them to practice how quickly from the time they see that fish can they get that fly out in front of that fish. So shortening your false casts, but also... At the same time, um, being able to just get to where you get that fly in the air and moving the second you see that fish, and as you're making your back cast and your first your one or two false casts, and you want to limit it to one or two false casts to save time, um, you want to be making those decisions. Okay, which way is he facing? Okay, another false cast. I need to lead him 15 feet, and then you shoot that line. So you want to get as quick as you can because a lot of people I find that get on the front of a boat and they see that fish they get paralysis or what's paralysis by analysis. So they're basically they They, they overanalyze it and they don't get that shot and then it's over. And then once the fish turns and runs, the fish is smoking out of there and now they're making that cast to it. And, and I'm on the back of the boat and I know it's too late. I would rather you just go for it and get somewhere out in front of that fish, figure out which side his face is, throw 10 feet on there and then strip it so that it's accurate. Yeah. Then wait three or four or five seconds and then that fish is already aware. He's already swam to the boat. And as far as the speed and your distance and, and accuracy and everything else, one thing that really leads into it that affects that is your line management. So I'd also tell them to practice line management. You know, we, we have different tools on the deck of our boats, whether it's a stripping bucket or a basket or a mat, or I've got line spikes on my de- deck of my boat that'll help with line control, but also just, you know, being in ready position, making sure your line's not wrapped around a cleat or a trolling motor, making sure it's not wrapped around a casting platform, making sure it's all behind you. There's not tangles in it that you've got, um, the, you know, a couple feet of fly line out plus, plus your leader so that when that fish comes, you have everything ready to go. You're not fiddling with anything and you can make use of every two or three seconds that fish gives you. That's right. That's that's the main thing I would I would talk to them about. And then maybe, you know, talk to them a little bit about how we're going to communicate 
those fish and have them let's thinking break about break down the scenario. Yeah, let's break down the scenario. Um, and that's that's real life stuff. Like it's great if you can go practice in your backyard, but if you're not practicing for the type of stuff you're actually doing, mm-hmm. then you got to spend a whole lot more t- time on that learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll throw one more last thing out. Um, double haul is important. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't ever want to try to teach somebody how to double haul on the, <clears throat> on the deck of the boat because it just, it's going to take all their concentration away from looking for those fish and casting those fish. It's just too much to think about. But, you know, if you're going to come and, and spend that time on the boat, we want you to be successful and a double haul helps all of those last things we talked about. Helps yep. with the speed. Helps with how quickly you can do it. Helps with the wind. Helps with all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, get with somebody who can do a double haul. Get them helping you to do it properly. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say on that is doing a double haul incorrectly is way worse than not doing a double haul at all. Yep. That's so, a really good that's point. It. I would have to echo what you said for sure. You know, minimize your false cast. Act quickly. You know what I mean? I don't really know how to say it any any different other than just act fast. You know what I mean? Yeah. Act urgently. Yeah. Because it, 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 it's an intense situation. You know what I mean? It, you got it five seconds. I mean, I will say that like a telling redfish, if he's happy in telling, you, you might have 10. Hopefully you see him 100 yards away. 10, 15 seconds of yeah. like you get, the chance, you get the chance to figure out every way you can screw this shot up. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how I feel in the battle. Like, yeah. Like there's – a hundred different ways I could mess this up, yeah. but no, but act quick. You know what I mean? It's really easy to really try to overthink this shot. Don't overthink it. Just start. I would rather tell you to pick up and go 10 feet to the right than to tell you, Hey man, that fish spooked out because the fly's still in the boat. Yep. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Yep. So, uh, but otherwise I think that that's a really good breakdown of, of what you need to know. Um, and, as guides, you know, you you choose a good guide or, or choose the guide you pair with the best, and he, he'll he'll talk you through the rest, right? Like you know, that's not where the fly needs to be, like this. And he'll he'll not make you, but he will talk you into understanding where a fly needs to be. And and most of the time, a redfish is going to eat a well placed fly, so he'll get you there if you can do those few things well. Yeah, and um, given you know. The, the fish are doing what they should do, and you you get ample opportunity ample opportunity to do so. Um, so the last thing, wrapping it up, what I want to want to pick your brain about on this episode is fly fishing in cloud cover. You, hmm. if you get an overcast day, you get a tough fly fishing day. What what's your what do you, what's your head at? What are you gonna do? So, <clears throat> I think as far as as fly anglers, our best success with fishing in shore is when we can sight fish. Yes, we catch them in the blind, but really we're throwing something that's tiny, doesn't vibrate much, doesn't have a lot of scent. The fish need it to be very close to them, so we it helps that we can see these fish. Um, that becomes a big problem when you deal with cloudy days and, and overcast days uh, because the the magic key, we want, we want low winds, we want clear water, and we want abundant sunshine. Um, that's what's going to give us the best opportunity to see those fish. And the low winds, that's not for casting. That's so we can actually see those fish. Because when you get ripples on the water, you are dealing with light and shadow dancing and all kinds of stuff that fools your eyes and either looks like a redfish or makes a redfish not look like a redfish. Um, so when you deal with overcast, uh, a couple thoughts come to mind. Um, one, 
and this is something that I found works for me. I do keep a pair of low light sunglasses um, because if you wear like regular brown or bronze lens um, when it's real overcast, sometimes it's just a little bit too dark. If you find yourself fishing a lot of times in conditions where you're actually pulling your glasses down because it's almost too dark, a, a, like an amber pair of glasses will help a lot and still give you that polarization to cut through that glare mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of glare when it's cloudy and overcast. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. But beyond spending money, um, I would try to find uh, one, the shallowest areas to fish because now we're relying more on where sight fishing pushes and wakes from fish because we might not see their bodies. Backs, tails. Backs, tails, all that stuff. So I'm trying to find the skinniest place. Um, if there's any breeze and it's not completely calm everywhere, then I'm going to go try to fish the shorelines that are like the lee side of the wind um, so that we can get some protection um, from that breeze because that slick water is going to be a little bit easier even with that glare to see those fish in it. And then the other thing is I, I, I generally tell my guys on the front of the boat, you know, when you got overcast cloudy days and basically I'd, I'd rather have a black stormy cloud day than just a white sky day. Cause oh, black, I'm a hundred percent. Right. Cause when it's, when it's like a storm cloud and it's real dark brown, black skies, the, um, the it, you don't have as much glare, but when you have I almost call it like, like tissue paper skies, it's that real thin, mm-hmm. hazy overcast, all the water's white everywhere except for generally where you have like along the Spartana grass lines or along the tree lines that the, the reflection of those trees and that grass cuts the glare where you see the reflection of that. So you can actually still see those fish there. So I tell my anglers, look for the fish where you can actually see the fish. So you may only be able to see really well in 20% of the areas you're around where you're fishing in that bay or that Creek, um, focus on those areas don't don't Mm -hmm. wear your eyes out trying to stare through that that white haze on the water so you know low light glasses help try to find places that are calm places that are shallow and um try to find places where you can actually have certain areas that have some reflection where you can see and then just go extra slow at it um because you you know you're going to need to look extra hard to see those fish definitely pulling slower in those situations yeah and the worst kind of sunlight is white poofy clouds everywhere Mm-hmm. And they'll come into the sun, and then they're out. And then your eyes are just constantly adjusting. Absolutely. It, that's the hardest. I would much, I, I've said it a million times. I would take a, con, a consistent sky over um, a good sunlight with inconsistency. It's so weird. We, we've never discussed that, but I, mm-hmm. I say that all the time, too. Because my eyes, when you have bright sunlight, you can see everything, and then cloud, and then bright sunlight, your eyes are just wigged out. They're constantly trying to yep. focus on the light and the dark. That it's absolutely the worst. And then I'm the guy who turns around to look to s- look at directly at the <laughs> sun to see how big that cloud is, and I turn around and I'm just yep. seeing lights flashing. I'd yep. much rather have it just overcast and adjust my eyes to yep. it. Yep. Or you, you're trying to look at the sun and, like, the cloud pattern coming because you don't want to pull this juicy part of the bank while yeah. there's a cloud over you. But then you just looked at the sun, and now it doesn't matter because you can't see anything. Right. You just looked at the sun. Yeah. So, Or, or you, you, you look across the marsh grass, and you can see the light in the dark, and you're like, oh, it's coming. You can see the light coming across the marsh, yep. and you, you wait, and then it fades out. Yeah, it changes or something. Yep. I totally agree. <laughs> no, but fishing the clouds suck, but there's, it's doable. I would say, I, again, I would just echo your points. Go shallow. Shallow as you can go. There's days where we, we actually just wait. We're like, okay. If it's sandy or whatever, and we can wade, we're like, yeah. guys, we got to get out and get shallow as we can. Um, I'm in a, probably a seven-inch boat, so 
I'll probably do that more than some other tunnels and things like that. But it's pretty cool, too, to have a fish that you just caught swim between your legs as you're trying to land it. So it's a cool experience, but get shallow as you can. Um, and also go to the heaviest concentration of fish, which we do every day anyways. Yeah. But there's a good chance we're going to make a lot of casts. Like, yeah. I don't know if there's a fish there or not. I think there's a fish there. You know what I mean? There's a lot of shots that I call out on cloudy days where I'm like, I, that might be a fish. But I'm not sure because I just can't see well. Right. So well, just make the cast. Make, make Cast are free. Yeah, make smart, educated, blind cast. So if, you know, if you think you got a shot to see a fish, don't be blind casting and spooking it. But if you get a push here and a push here and a push here, or if you get, oh, mud puff, mud puff, mud puff, just stop and start fan casting mm-hmm. with it. Yep. And, and, you know, you got a shot. I, I think, the you know, as me and you being um, kind of fanatics of the whole fly fishing scene, I think the one other advice I'd give on that is for all of you fly anglers, if you have those conditions, don't be afraid to put the fly rod down and pick up a spinning rod that was and catch that fish. Because, <laughs> I, look, I, I would rather catch one redfish on fly than five on spin, but I would rather catch one on spin than none at all. Yes, that's right. Now my, I was going to conclude. I was going to say, um, at the end of the day, my biggest piece of advice is, uh, how do you feel about picking up a spin rod? Yeah. Have you ever thrown a topwater plug? I'm <laughs> telling you what, a, a redfish on a Zara Spooker, a yeah. walks, yeah. it's just as fun as it is on fly. Yeah, no. Absolutely. It, I, that's where we don't really marry, marry the purest idea. I've recently said, that, like, although I'm a fly fishing guy, and, and I accept that title, I don't really tell people that. Like, what do you do for work? I don't say I'm a fly fishing guy because I have spinning rods daily. You know what I mean? Like, I still take kids' trips, and I still throw a cast net when things get really hard. So, yes, I'm a fly fishing guy. That That is a title that that I have and accept, but at the same time, like, I don't marry it. You know what I mean? Like, hey, guys, our, our take the Roanoke River. What we're doing right now is they're biting jigs a whole lot better. I can You can catch three on fly in an eight-hour trip, or you can catch 25 on a jig and put the ball in their court, but I have no problem picking up a spin, spin rod. Yeah. Not at all. I, I think the whole point for us as guides is to make sure that the people who are coming on our boat have the most fun possible. That's and there's it. some people that will have zero fun catching one on a spin right. and they'd rather just zero out on fly. And I will do everything I can to make sure they can do that. But in general, our whole goal is to have fun and to make good memories. And for yep. 99% of people, they'd rather whack them on a spinning rod on a day that's not correct to, you know, it's not yep. a good day to fish, uh-huh. fish a fly. So, you know, and some people, you have to do fly long enough to to kind of get that out of your system. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm very much I've kind of come full circle. And just like when I was a kid catching bluegill and bobbers, I did that because that was fun. Now I just yep. if I'm going for redfish, or albies, or stripers, or whatever, like I'm going to do whatever makes the most sense that day and what's going to put the biggest smile on my face. That's right. No, I totally agree, man. At, at the end of the day, it's about providing that angling thrill whatever that looks like no matter what the tool in your hand is is just providing that thrill and if you're on the bow you know as guides we, we take the bass but man what do we want to do for fun today do i want to catch some on top water do i want to catch some on jig like i was able to fun fish this week and i was like i'm gonna catch them on jig they're biting jigs me too that's a blast me too so um whatever whatever the thrill is provide that or achieve that and that's just my opinion. That's the beauty of fishing. That. Yeah, and and uh, and we're looking out for you, 
guys, so when when you do catch that, when you and you know you got to brag to all your fly fishing buddies, and you catch that fish on that jig, that gold spoon or that topwater plug or whatever, we will take that lure out of his mouth before you take the photo of that fish. So there won't have to be any questions asked when you go home and you show the pictures of your yep. redfish or your striper or whatever it is. That if it's a fly, we'll leave it in there. But if it's a big old jig, we'll we'll pop that thing out before you take your picture. Why do fly anglers do that? Why do we always set the fly rod in the lap of a fly angler that he just and, caught? And we always turn the fish so that it's the side that the fly is in on his mouth. To well, yep. Because we have to... I think we do it now that we do it every single fish, but I've, I've often wondered like, why don't we treat this just like another fish we caught and just give him the fish, no rod, no lure, no fly or whatever. But because you don't do that with a spinning rod, you don't lay the spinning rod across your shoulders or, or across your lap. It's or, it's cause we have something to prove and we're not trying to, if everybody fly fished, we would never put a fly rod in somebody's lap. Good point. I think we kind of have that. I don't know that little man syndrome over like, we, you know, we, you know, we get back to dock as fly anglers, and our angler's stoked because he caught two on fly, and then he asked the, the guide next door on the other side of the dock, well, we caught twenty, you know, and so I think because we know that we're, it's harder for us to do it. It's not a bragging thing. I think sometimes it's just like a, hey, look, we're catching them too on on this hard way. So I think it's yeah. just, you know, I think it's just kind of every once in a while just going. So we can do it. It's, see, I mean, but bow hunters do it. Yeah, you'll, absolutely. You'll rarely see a dead deer that was killed with a bow when the bow's not in the picture. Right. Like, hey, yeah, I achieved this, and I know this is a mediocre achievement. Say you're using spin rods or a rifle, but this is a really, really big achievement. Yeah. Because I did use a bow and I did use a fly rod. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're taking the picture to brag, and not brag, but like. You're taking the picture to to show whoever what you did, you know, whether you just don't post it and show your family or you do post it to show your followers. You're, oh, excuse me. You're still posting it either way to show somebody something, and it's just a way to communicate that, you know. Like, yeah, yeah this was a minor achievement in other worlds, but this is a pretty large achievement because I did have a fly well, or a bow agree. or whatever, you know. That, that's, that's the biggest analogy I can think of. I bet you we could do an entire hour podcast just <laughs> entitled – why do we take photos of the fish we catch or yeah. the deer we shoot or anything? Cause that, I mean, that's a whole like psychology of it. That's like, right. Why, why do we, you know, why do we share it? And why do, you know, are we fishing f- just to get the picture or are mm-hmm. we fishing for the experience? And if the experience is good enough, did we need to even take the picture? Yeah. I, we take a, you know, and it's weird. Do you, if you've caught like two nice red fish and then you catch like a 11 inch dinker, no, no photos are taken of that fish, nope. right? It's nope. Same thing with the striper. Yeah. We've had some really good quality fish in the first 12-inch striper that comes to the boat. It doesn't matter if it's number 50 or number 4. Like We're like, all right, just think, pop yeah. the hook, get him back. And I thought about it today. I got a story comes to mind. I was fishing with my brother-in-law, great fly angler. And we um, we were in a gnu of all things, actually. This is before I got it. I, I rocked a gnu for a while. I did, too. And loved it. Um but don't miss it either. But anyways, we we were super, super shallow. We were so shallow, we ditched the canoe and started wading. And we got there, and the fish were doing it dirty. And so we proceeded to catch, like, two fish. We doubled up. And that's probably the only way I've ever doubled up with somebody on a fly rod is that we were wading. And um, it was good. And we proceeded to catch more fish than that. But anyways, the, the we hooked up, bam, and then I hooked up, and I looked over, I'm like, crap, we don't have a phone. 
how are we going to take pictures of these fish? And immediately it left my mind. He looked at me and was like, just enjoy it. And I felt so guilty. Now, I was like, I don't know, 19, 20, and I felt so guilty, man. I was like, you're right. Like, why? I'm not fishing for Instagram. I'm not fishing to show any. I don't have anything to prove at the time, you know. Well, maybe at the time I did, but nonetheless, I was like, I just, he got me. It was a convicting a little bit. I'm like, you're right. Let's mess these fish up for just a minute and and enjoy it. Why, why, why do I need my phone here to take a picture or DSLR or whatever? I was like, you're right. You know, he got me. He got me good. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you really hit on something there. I bet you, you remembered a lot of some of the really cool experiences from your childhood there's no photos to document, Mm -hmm. you know, your first bluegill that Mm -hmm. you caught or your first catfish or bass or, you know, your first trip to go see someplace or whatever. And you didn't take photos of it back then, but it's still important because you actually experienced it through your eyes instead of through through an iPhone. Yeah. Or do you remember catching your first fish and you didn't have a phone or you didn't have a, so you ran back with this fish in your hand to show your mom and your dad or whoever it was, your your buddies, like, look what I get. there was no picture. You know, I remember running back to the house with the trout in my hands and being like, "Dad, look! Oh my God!" And like, I just caught this trout. Um, telling on myself, I, that was a that was a good trout that should have never died. But nonetheless, I was just so fired up and I didn't have a phone. You know what I mean? So it, it was it was cool, and, and you you got to keep that in sight. Like that's why we do what we do. Now, we take pictures because we have a business to run and we have to, you know, we have to market. But, and and we want our clients to be able to go back to their fly fishing club or their buddies who fly fish or whoever and be like, look what I did. That was awesome, you know. And I'm not not saying, I'm not crapping on that. That's great, you know. Pictures are amazing because it's a memory that you get to capture. And that's an amazing thing. Um, And there's a lot of other applications that pictures are cool for. But at the end of the day, it, it, don't forget. Don't lose sight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't don't let the joy, the pure joy of that experience, be ruined by the pursuit of chasing numbers, chasing size, or chasing clout. Yeah. With your fishing buddies, that's a great way to put it. And and all those things are fine. You get a pat on the back, great. You you get your biggest whatever species ever, great. You caught the most fish in one day you've ever caught, great. But don't ever let the pursuit of that uh, cloud your memories and, and your That's experience right. and your joy of, of doing that. Yeah. And one other thing that pictures do for me is I'll find myself sometimes, whether I'm you know at the ramp waiting for the rain to pass or something, scrolling through old memories. And your memories also pop up yeah. on whatever kind of you know Facebook, Snapchat, or, or in your thing. It was like, look what you did three years ago. And I'm looking back, and I can look at this picture, and all it is is a grip and grin. You know what I mean? Or, or something, whatever happened, and then it takes you back to that time. Like, man, that was a fun trip with so and so. You remember exactly what point in the marsh that yeah. fish came off of, and all that stuff. I do that about welding throughout the year. You know, we're we're grinding it out in the middle of August, and I'm like hot, and like, man. And you worded it so well recently on a post. You were like smelling the honeysuckles and, and seeing the eagles. I'm like, dag gum. Am I excited for welding? And I'm wearing, like, shorts and a hoodie yep. in the morning. And I'm chatting it up with the guys I haven't seen in a year. And then I'm, I'm floating. I'm drifting down the river. And I just, like, can't. But I would have never gotten that had I not taken that picture. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's there's something great about them, but it can't get in the way of of the rest of fishing. So Absolutely. There's a lot to you. You're right. We should probably just stop now and then start a part two on that topic because it could go for a long time. You could do that. I mean, you yeah, we could do it. We'll stop this and but you could do it. <laughs> you could do a part two on why do you fish? I mean, that'd be a, oh my god, that would go like I'm believe it or not, guys. I'm actually like kicked back on a couch right now, and I was just thinking this would be a perfect like therapy session. And the question could be, you could be like the you know the the psychologist, like why do you fish? Whoa, <laughs> this goes back to my child. So yeah, right. that would be a great topic to talk about. Like what really drives you? Why do you do it? What, what makes you spend all this money and time and effort to go out there and chase this thing with gills and fins? Why does it make you so happy? The pursuit. Could you give me a thumbnail? Could you give me like a summarized answer? Because I don't know that I could. I don't honestly. I don't know that I've ever thought about it hard enough. Um, I did have a client break it down for me two days ago. What was he, that? he said it's an alpha male thing. Oh, was that a client? No, it doesn't matter who it was. Somebody just broke it down. They were like, "It's an alpha." Um, oh, it's a guy I had lunch with today. Matter yeah. of fact. Met up with a, a friend of mine or whatever, a guy in the industry. He was he was just kind of chatting it up with me. He was like, "Yeah, he's like it's an it's an alpha male thing, you know. So what people did to provide for their families, and then he's like, that's why there's jealousy involved. He's like, because someone else does it better or more or whatever, then there's this alpha male thing that kicks in, and like you get jealous. You're like, no, I that's not, I am, and I don't know if that's right or wrong, or if that's just him, or you know what I mean. I think it's a little different for everybody, but." Why do you fish? Obviously, we fish to make a living. That's what we've brought it to. But there's something more there, you know. To yeah, so it's it's weird. Like if I <clears throat> before you mentioned that, if I had to break it down, I think I would have told you that the reason I fish, the reason I used to hunt, the reason I'm big into wildlife photography, all these things, it's just an excuse. For me to get away from the TV, the computer, the stress, the work, everything else, and put myself in surroundings that cause me to focus on that part of nature that makes me everything else melt away. Where I'm, when I'm fishing and when I'm, you know, hiking looking for a bear, or when I used to go deer and turkey hunting, I wasn't worried about school or work or bills or doctor's appointment or any of that stuff. It was therapy for me. So my answer to you honestly is that it's just it's just mental therapy for me to go out and and that I think that is naturally what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to we're not supposed to be inside of four walls and a ceiling and a floor all day long every single day. Like that's we're designed to go barefoot and go outside and, right. and do that stuff. Um so for me I would say that but that's a great question though that then why do we get jealous when the guy goes and catches twice as many as us? I yeah. think that I think the jealousy thing, it maybe it's alpha male, maybe it's not, but I think it's just natural human. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It goes back to Cain and Abel. Like this is what we are. Yeah. We, we we're just jealous creatures. It's yep. just it is what it is. But why we fish, I believe I would have to answer in a multitude of reasons. You know what I mean? I think it is because I think I did it at first because I just had some luck in the beginning. I was like, and when you're good at something, you're going to keep doing it, right? So that's probably the 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 beginning for me, right? I'm kind of, I'm, I'm good at this. Well, looking back, I really wasn't good at it. You know, I just got lucky um, or whatever the case was. And then it become this puzzle that was like, like, 
pleasing to my brain to figure out. Like I'm thinking, I'm putting a ton of effort into it, but it's like people who play Sudoku or for fun or or, or, yeah. or whatever. Um, or or I, I equate it to like people who run for fun. Yeah, it's hard, but they, they like it or whatever. You know what I mean? The same thing. It's like there's this puzzle. There's this like why. There's a million factors, and it's just like, satisfying to my my brain for some reason to figure it out to to look at my fishing logs to whatever um so there's that and then there's there's this thing that just happened within the last five years is like there's just because i'm enamored with the species because i'm just there's an obsession there like i just think enamored and obsession and addiction are like the only ways to describe it like it's not like oh yeah it's cool it's like i can't stop thinking about it to a problematic level. You were you were born to be a marine biologist at heart. May, like. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I just I also recently just said that I couldn't write a better job description for myself. Like, th- this is it. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah what because, else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I've, I've also got that question. Like, if you wasn't doing this, what'd you do? And I was like. <laughs> That's a scary, scary question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um Hopefully I can just keep doing this. Yeah. But um, no, I, there's a, I think it's a multitude of reasons, and it, I think it's an evolving answer too. You know, you can ask me in five years and be like, I don't know, I freaking hate it. I just pay my bills. You know, I might be burned out by then. I don't yeah. know. I doubt it. But um, I, I think the topics, you, it's, it's something about the therapy too because I'm not worried. All of a sudden, I push away from the dock, and I leave this. It feels like I'm leaving a world behind. Like. Yeah. It feels like two different places. And really, I'm five feet away from the dock. Right. And then I'm, I'm immersed in this other atmosphere where I'm like, I don't, I don't care what bills we yep. do. And I'm looking at this. There's two different ways. There's why do you guide, which that's not what we're talking about. <sighs> to me, I'm talking distinctly on why do you fish. Like, yeah. if I'm not doing it, taking, I'm doing it personally for me. That I think these answers kind of resonate with that. You go into the yeah. whole thing of, like, why do you guide? Like, you're, you're serving someone else at that point. That's a whole different and that takes Aspect. a mentality in and of itself, too. Oh, yeah. You know, I think we just have servant attitudes. We work in the hospitality industry. And you, if you don't have that, then, you know, personally, and I'm not saying I have a really long career in it, but I don't think you're going to have a super long career if you don't have this servant mentality. Um, and in all careers I've ever had, it has, has been this servant type, you know, because I fought fire before this and I was a servant to the community. Now I'm. I just all I I didn't really change that much. I just went from serving people on their worst days to serving people on their best days. There you go. You know, I saw people on the worst days of their life, and now I see people on the best days of their year. Same thing. Yep. I'm still in this hospitality, you know, sir. So you just you just have. I think for me, why why I ended up guiding was it just it was I didn't know what it was at first. You know what I mean? I had this idea of what guiding would be. Nothing at all what I thought it would be. But it ended up being the best job description for traits that I had, didn't even know I had. And, uh, you know, natural leader, natural coach, natural um, servant, whatever the case is. Like, I was like, yeah, this is this yeah. is what I'm meant to do. Educator, cheerleader, all that stuff. All of the all of the above. That's how I ended up guiding. But what, what do you think? Why, how, why do you guide? Well, why did I start guiding is probably different than why do I currently guide. I no, think, same. Yeah. Why Why did I start? I started to be rich and fish every day. So <laughs> I, st- I started because I, I worked a state government job and we couldn't, and the economy crashed and I couldn't, we couldn't, my wife and I couldn't pay our bills and we had a kid in 
uh, starting daycare and we wanted to be able to have a second kid and we wanted to be able to maybe go out to dinner once a month and mm-hmm. I wanted to provide more and I was I was watching other people <clears throat> get paid to do what I was doing for free for friends and I was like I think I might be able to pull this off and you know I got the guts to start doing it part time that's why I started doing it why do I do it now um, I think a couple reasons there although it's the hardest thing I've ever done because you are completely self-reliant on your ability to grow your business and keep it going and keep customers coming to you. Um, I mean, you work 24 seven, honestly, you know, if you're a guide, you're always on call. Um, so I think for me, the it's, it's even though you have to work that much, there's still freedom in it and that you have control over your time and your schedule so that I do, you know, I work harder than I ever did when I worked for state government, but um, I get to choose when I work and how much effort I put to free up time to spend with my family. So one is the freedom of it to feel like, I, you know, to be your own boss. And then I think the other thing is just honestly the satisfaction. I, I'd be fine if I never caught another fish in North Carolina again, but I do thoroughly enjoy seeing other people catch them. I mean, to me, it's such a, it's so much bigger deal now. Like I, if I had to choose between uh, fishing every day on my own or, or watching people catch their first fish every day I, I would choose that I, I love the whole service part of it I love making someone's day I love them seeing them do their first or get better at something or I mean I don't know you've dealt with it too like sometimes we get people that it's therapy for them you know that there's a lot of stuff that's shared um in that 17 foot between the pulling platform and the casting platform on a skiff that would only be shared you know with a with a therapist somewhere, yeah. you know, how did flip pallet word it? There's things said on the skiff that wouldn't be said in a confessional. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, it's exactly right. You know? And so that I've, I've had some of the, I, I took somebody that I didn't know till halfway through the trip was battling stage four cancer and was only given a few months to live. And that was their last fishing trip they had planned. I had a gentleman that came and fished with me that he had cared for his wife that had, uh, cancer for like a year and she had passed away like two or three days prior to the fishing trip. And he called me last minute because he just had to get out of the house and get out, out of the town he lived in. And, you know, and I still remember the fish he caught, the redfish he caught on fly and where he caught it. And, you know, you work a whole lot harder when you know it's not just somebody burning time on a weekend. Those are the reasons that I stay in it now, mm-hmm. that, that, fr- that, that control of my time, feeling like I'm in control and being able to, whether I make somebody's day, make somebody's year, or change the course of what they're going to do the rest of their life, that that's why I do it now. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. I would have to echo all of those points just as much as what I said. That's enough because I've had very, very similar, you know, interactions where like, and I'm not. This doesn't take away from any trip. Like I, I would like to think that I give 100 percent every time I push away from the dock, but there's certain times I've I've gotten stories similar. I'm like. It matters. It really matters today, more so than the pursuit of of checking the box or, or, or a personal best or something. Those things are important, and I love guiding for them. But there's there's also those moments that really recenter you. Like this is why I do what I do. So I, I would agree, man. Um, but do you do you have anything else to add or anything else you'd like to touch on? I think that's a pretty good one. I think we <laughs> yeah. could. Pro- I think we're just going to do another show because I. 
think we could talk for like probably another hour, <laughs> but uh, I think I think we covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, remind everybody where we can find you right quick. Uh, you can find me at tailingtideguideservice.com, and Tailing Tide is all my social media. Or if you want to check out those fly rods we were talking about, it's Mauser Fly Fishing, M-A-U-S-E-R, flyfishing.com. And uh, if I can help you guys out with anything, answer any questions or whatnot, um, not even if you want to go fishing, just if you want to chat about fishing or if I can show you some flies or help you pick out a fly line for your rod or anything, just give me a shout. I would love to chat with you. So Right on, right on. Well, John, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode, and we will see you next time. Later.